Well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So excited that we're starting a new sermon series this morning, walking verse by verse through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, letter of Ephesians. And we're going to focus on the first two verses today, because in these verses, these verses point us to four reasons why we should study and learn and read and pray over and live this book, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So, four reasons. Here's what Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, why should we study this letter? Four reasons that these two verses point to. First reason, because this letter was written by Paul, whose life displays the worth of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, first word, Paul. This letter was written by Paul. Now, who was Paul? Let me give you a recap, and I want to show you how Paul's life displays the worth of Jesus Christ. And I'm praying that as we do this, there will well up in your heart, I want to read what any man who displays Christ's worth like this writes. I want to learn what he's thinking. I want to see what he's feeling. I want to see what's going on in him. So who was Paul? Let's start with Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Paul is sharing his background, and listen to what he says. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, top of the heap of the Jewish people, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul was Jewish, and he was a Pharisee, which was one of the strictest groups within Judaism. Now, the Pharisees completely misunderstood the Old Testament. Although they memorized it and they studied it, they completely misunderstood the Old Testament, and they thought the whole focus was on external acts of obedience by which they thought they would earn righteousness from God. They completely ignored all the heart focus of loving God and worshiping God, delighting in God. They didn't even know God. It was all about external lists of things to do. In fact, they weren't happy with just the lists that were in the Old Testament. They added on extra commands so they could have more self-righteousness. So, for example, we know the Old Testament says it's good to have a rhythm where one day a week you're resting. It's a good thing, okay? Don't work one day, rest but they wanted to add to this, so they made up rules like, if a poor person came to your door on the Sabbath, knocked on the door, you opened it, as long as they reached their hand over the threshold and you put money in it, as long as it was their hand reaching over the threshold, then you weren't working. That was okay. But if your hand reached over the threshold and put money in their hand, you're working. And they had hundreds of commands like that, intricate, little, tiny outside external obedience, and by this they thought they were gaining, earning, meriting righteousness before God. 
And notice at the end of verse 6, Paul says, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. This just shows the deception that all of us have been under, right? Either we don't think there's a God or we think I'm blameless because I'm better than George over here or whatever, but he thought he was blameless in terms of the Old Testament law, even though he was full of self-righteousness and full of pride and didn't even know God. He thought he was blameless before God. But then he started hearing about these Christians. And these Christians were telling everybody, the Messiah has come. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And Jesus taught that we can't earn righteousness before God. He taught that all of us have sinned against God and that all of us deserve God's judgment because of our sin. But these Christians were telling everybody, but here's the good news. Jesus died in our place on the cross. The Messiah died. God came to earth in the person of Jesus, and God died on the cross, punished in our place, paying for our sins. And then God raised him from the dead to show that this wasn't the death of an ordinary criminal, but this was the death of the Messiah, the Son of God, which did pay for sin. And these Christians were going around telling everybody, if you'll just turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ, you'll be completely forgiven by God. Your hearts will be supernaturally changed. You'll receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit by which you will know and feel and experience God's love, God's presence, God's nearness. The joy you've been longing for all your life will be yours in Him. Turn from your sin. Put your trust in Jesus. That was the message that they were preaching everywhere. And that message, as Paul heard it, he knew this was destroying everything Paul had built his life on. Everything. So Paul was furious. And he got authority from the chief priests to start persecuting Christians. And so he did. He threw them into prison. He had them killed. Look at Acts chapter 26, verses 9 and 10. Paul tells his story. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Paul said, kill them. And they were killed. Paul was completely opposed to Christianity. He hated Christianity. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. But God saved Paul. God had mercy upon Paul. Changed his heart and revealed Jesus to him. It's amazing. This happened as Paul was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest some Christians and bring them back in chains to Jerusalem. But look at what happened. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. At this time, his name was Saul. This is before he was saved. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, 
he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. Well, you can imagine, Saul was shocked. I mean, he thought Jesus was dead. He thought all the talk about Jesus rising from the dead was just a hoax perpetrated by the, by the Christians. But here, Saul meets the resurrected Jesus, and the light of Jesus' glory was so intense that it blinded him. He was blinded. So he was led by hand to Damascus. He went to Damascus. And for three days, he didn't eat anything. He didn't drink anything. He thought about all he'd studied in the Old Testament, and he saw he had completely missed the message of the Old Testament. His whole life had been built upon his own self-righteousness, his own pride. He didn't know God at all. He saw that he had been living in sin all of his life with all of his religious practices. It was sin against God. And so he repented, and he turned from his sin, and he trusted Jesus to forgive him. He trusted Jesus to change his heart. He trusted Jesus to pour out the Holy Spirit upon him. That's exactly, exactly what happened. A very brave Christian named Ananias. Can you imagine if you were a Christian and God said, go talk to Saul, the one who arrests Christians? Yeah, that, that's the one. The one who's had Christians killed? You, good, you know him. Go ahead, go talk to him. Ananias stepped out of the boat, stepped out of the water, went and talked to Paul, and he laid his hands on him, and he prayed for him, and Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus filled his heart. He knew God. He knew he was forgiven. He knew he was in God's family, and his eyes were, were healed. And what did he do? Immediately, he went into the synagogue next door nearby and started preaching Jesus as the Messiah. And for the next 30 years of his life, he preached in synagogues. He went into the marketplace and talked to whoever he could talk to. He went door to door with tears, appealing to people, put your trust in Jesus. Your heart will be changed. You can be forgiven. You'll know God, please. He raised up elders. He planted churches. He wrote letters to the churches, just like this letter to the church at Ephesus. For 30 years, that's what Paul did. And he saw thousands of people brought to faith in Christ and dozens, hundreds of churches planted. So what motivated Paul? What moved him? Why did he do this? It wasn't money. He was supporting himself. He was a tent maker, literally. He sewed tents. So he wasn't in it for the money. That's clear. It wasn't comfort that motivated him. Paul did not experience much earthly comfort. Paul suffered. He suffered lots. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23 to 25. Here's the setting. 
I want to tell you this because it sounds like Paul's boasting here, and he hated doing this, but this was for the sake of the believers at this church because some false teachers had come into this church, and they were saying, Paul's not an apostle. Don't listen to what he preaches about Jesus. That's false teaching. Listen to us. And it was not the gospel that these false teachers were bringing. And so Paul said, I'm, I'm going to spare no effort to help these believers in Corinth understand these are false teachers. The word I'm preaching is the truth of God. So here's what Paul says to them. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Paul just hates boasting. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments. Imprisonments. With countless beatings. I mean, imagine if you've had... I haven't been beaten once. Imagine countless beatings, often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, lest one. He remembered five, one, two. He remembered every one of them. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and left for dead. Remember that story in the book of Acts? Three times I was shipwrecked, and night and a day I was adrift at sea. Was Paul doing this for the comfort why did Paul suffer? Why was he willing to keep going into synagogues, preaching in the marketplaces, going door to door, planting churches, knowing he would continue to suffer in this way? What does his life, his suffering, show us? It shows us the worth of Jesus Christ. Look at what he writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If somebody said to Paul, why do you suffer? He would say, do you know him? Do you know him? If the path of knowing Jesus takes me to prison, I'm going. If the path of knowing Jesus takes me to be stoned, I'm there. Do you know him? I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I want Jesus. I've tasted. I want more. And if the path of obedience takes me through suffering, he's worth it. So this is the first reason we should study Ephesians that I see verse 1 pointing to. It's because it was written by Paul, whose life shows the worth of Jesus Christ. I want to listen to a man like that. I want to sit down and say, talk to me. Tell me what's true. Tell me what stirs you. That's the first reason. His life displays the worth of Christ. Second reason which verse 1 points to. It's because this letter was written by an apostle who wrote perfect truth from God. Look at verse 1 again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. An apostle. So Paul was an apostle, not of his own choosing, but he was an apostle by the will of God. So who were apostles? Well, apostles were men who had seen Jesus 
after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, alive. They'd seen the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes so they could be witnesses of the resurrection. And they were men who'd been commissioned by Jesus to be apostles, who would preach the gospel, who would plant churches, and who would receive perfect truth directly from God to write and to preach. And we see that in John 14, 26, where Jesus is talking to the apostles. This verse is for the apostles, as you'll see when we read it. Jesus says to them, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I, Jesus, have said to you. So the apostles spoke and wrote perfect truth from God. And that's what we have in the New Testament. Just like the the capital P prophets in the Old Testament, so with the apostles in the New Testament, they were specially gifted by God to write perfect, true, inerrant, infallible from God, truth from God. Now, Paul was the last of the apostles, which means that the Scriptures are now complete. There's no more apostles. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 9. Look again at what Paul writes. He says, Then the resurrected Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles. So he was the last of the apostles, verse 8. He was the least of the apostles, verse 9. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul was the last of the apostles, which means there's no more scripture being written. The scriptures are complete. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. You're holding it in your hands. What a gift. But think of what this means. All scripture including all of Paul's letters, including this letter, letter to the Ephesians, is truth directly from God. It's not the opinions of any person. This is truth from your Creator, God, writing truth so that we know who we are, why we're here, what's gone wrong, what's the solution. That's what we're holding in our hands. So that's the second reason we should read this letter, because it was written by an apostle, who wrote perfect truth from God. So here's what this means when it comes to the letter of Ephesians. When we read in chapter 1 that everything we need is found in Christ, that's perfect truth from God. When we read in chapter 1 that God the Father has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet, that's perfect truth from God. When we read in chapter 1 that God's purpose is to unite everything in Christ, that this is the purpose for the whole universe, is that everything would be united in glorifying Christ, that's perfect truth from God. When we read in chapter 2 that the way we're saved is by God's grace through faith in Christ and that all of that is a gift from God, that's perfect truth from God. When we read in chapter 3 that we can be, in this life as believers, filled up to all the fullness of God, that's perfect truth from God. When we read in chapter 4 how we are to work and how we are to talk and how we are to forgive, 
and how we are to love and how we are to raise our children, that's perfect truth from God. When we read in chapter 5, husbands, that we are to lay our lives down for our wives, to love them as Christ loved the church, and that wives are to submit to their husbands, that's perfect truth from God. When we read in chapter 6 that we're not battling against people here in this world, we're battling against supernatural spiritual powers here in this world, and that God has given us spiritual weapons by which we can conquer the supernatural powers we're battling against. That's perfect truth from God. Everything in Ephesians is perfect truth from God. That's the second reason we should read this letter. It's written by an apostle who wrote perfect truth from God. Are you, are you, are you getting a stronger desire to, to read Ephesians? Don't stop whatever else you're reading, but maybe add Ephesians in. It's because the more you read during the week, the more benefit you'll get from these times Friday morning. Third reason. This letter was written to saints in a difficult city who were trusting Jesus. Okay, look at verse 1 again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And notice that word saints. It's a word we don't use enough. Literally, that word means holy ones. Every believer is a saint because when God saved you, He changed your hearts. So you love Jesus more than anything. It doesn't mean you become sinless, but it means we hate sin. We fight sin. And when we stumble into sin, we repent and turn back to Jesus and are cleansed and get back into the fight against sin. It means we love Jesus more than anything. We want to know Jesus. We're saints. Okay, so what that means is that, you know, we have saints in this room. Not that we've had, who are they, some special guests? No, we've got St. N.A. right here in front of me. Right? We've got St. Luke, we've got St. Janet, okay, we've got St. Tash, we've got, okay? So start calling yourself Saint, Saint, Saint. It's true, right? We're saints. Notice that phrase, faithful in Christ Jesus. Not only were they saints by faith in Christ, they were faithful, which means they were full of faith in Jesus Christ, and because of that, they were joined. They were joined in Jesus Christ. They were united to Christ by faith. They knew Jesus. So instead of relying on their own righteousness to save them or relying on worldly pleasures to satisfy them, they trusted Jesus to save them and to satisfy them. Changed. Faithful in Christ Jesus. And then notice that word Ephesus. Ephesus was a city of about 200,000 to maybe 250,000 people located on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. Here's a map right there. See it? Ephesus, western coast of modern-day Turkey. It was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, and they had built a theater that holds, held 24,000 people. Here's a picture. Held 24,000 thousand people, even that's what it looks like today. It also had in it the temple, a temple built to the goddess Artemis, the goddess Artemis. Artemis was worshipped throughout the Roman Empire, and we know that Ephesus was devoted to her worship because they built this temple. That's what it would look like, that's what it looked like back then. There's still some columns and some pieces remaining. This is one of the largest buildings in the Roman Empire, 
And it was considered at that time one of the seven wonders of the world with this temple to Artemis. So we know this is a city which is full of false pagan religion, just like all of us were from, okay? There was all, it also was a center of magic, Ephesus, lots of the dark arts, the occult, magic going on, as well as a large number of Jews because there were many synagogues also in that city. So Ephesus was full of other religions, and yet Paul says that there were saints there now. There were faithful believers who were in Christ Jesus. So how did Christians get there? How did a church get planted there? You can read about this in Acts 18 through 20. Let me just tell you the story. This is, I love this story. In AD 52, Paul came to Ephesus, and he went into the synagogue, started preaching. Just for a couple weeks. He could only stay for a few weeks. They said, please stay longer, stay longer. He said, I can't. I've got to go preach elsewhere. I will be back, Lord willing. A year later, he was back. He, he meets 12 of John the Baptist's disciples. Remember that story, Acts 19? They had not heard the full gospel. They just heard John preaching, and that was it. And so they, they hadn't received the gift of the Holy Spirit, so Paul preaches them the full gospel about who Jesus Christ is. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. Put your trust in Him. You'll be forgiven. You'll be changed. Get to the Holy Spirit. Paul lays hands on them, pray for them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit transformed, blessed. God gives them tongues and prophecy. Just John the Baptist's disciples. And then Paul goes into the synagogue, starts preaching again, and people are getting saved. Jewish people, God-fearers, Gentile God-fearers getting saved. But after a time, there was some animosity that was raised up. People were angry, and so Paul moved from the synagogue to the Hall of Tyrannus, which is where Gentiles would hang out, and he preached for two years in the Hall of Tyrannus, and people are getting saved, more coming to faith in Christ. Not only that, but Paul, God was backing up Paul's preaching with outpourings of miracles and power. So, for example, many, remember there was the dark arts that were practiced here, there were many people in Ephesus who were oppressed by demons. And word got out, when Paul commands demons to leave in Jesus' name, they leave. People are like freed from this oppression. Now, there are some Jewish exorcists who heard about this. They saw that demons left when Paul prayed in Jesus' name. They thought, we should try that. This would really up our game, okay? We're not doing so well. Let's try that. So they, they met up with a man who was oppressed by a demon spirit, and they in Jesus' name, come out. Well, the demon screams at them, I know Paul, and I know Jesus. Who are you guys? And the demon jumps on them, beats them up, tears their clothes off them, and they're running out into the streets naked. I just, read it, Acts 19. And so word goes out about these naked men running and about healings that are taking place and about demons being freed, about people being saved. And a church is established by what God does through Paul by his power. But what I want you to feel here is that this letter is written to people that are kind of like us. Okay, saints, we are saints by God's grace through Jesus. We're faithful, we're trusting Christ. They lived in a city that was full of other religions, and we're living in a region that's full of other religions. And I want to hear, what would Paul say to believers we're in that kind of a setting, that kind of a situation. That's the third reason. 
This letter was written to saints in a difficult city who are trusting Jesus. One last reason. Because this letter will give us even more grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. Grace and peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the picture. Every single one of us are standing either under, under God's judgment or we're standing under God's grace. It's one or the other. There, there's no in-between. There's no gray areas here. It's either you're standing under God's grace or you're standing under God's judgment. And we, we all have stood under God's judgment because of our sin. Every one of us has been under God's judgment. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, when we turned from our sin and put our trust in Jesus, we were transferred from being under God's judgment to being under God's grace. And here's what it means to be under God's grace. I just listed a few things. It means that every circumstance you face is under God's loving and wise control. Beautiful. It means that every temptation you face can be conquered by His power working in and through you. It means that every heart longing you have, every time your heart is empty, you can be satisfied in Jesus. That's what it means. It means every trial you face, every suffering you experience, will bring you even more joy and nearness with Him. Every challenge will be met by His faithfulness to you. Every problem will be addressed by one of His promises. That's what it means to stand under God's grace. But notice Paul doesn't just mention grace, he also mentions peace. Because when we are under God's grace, we are at peace. Fear leaves. Worry disappears. Insecurity vanishes when we're standing under the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Here's the question, though. If we already have God's grace and God's peace, which we do, why does Paul say in verse 2, grace to you and peace? We've already got grace. Why grace to you? And I was really helped by what John Piper says about this verse and many other verses, all of Paul's letters open up with similar language, grace to you and peace, and all of Paul's letters close with the phrase, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Now think about that. If you open the letter by saying grace and peace to you, and you close it by saying grace with you, what's happened between them, between the to you and the with you is that grace and peace were given, so now you have grace with you. May grace be to you. You read the letter. You pray through the letter. Grace is coming. Peace is coming. And now grace is with me. So here's the picture. You're standing under this massive water tower called God's grace and peace. Okay, there it is. And the spigot is open because you're trusting Jesus and grace and peace are flowing upon you. Okay? But what Paul is saying is that when we open up, and this is true of, of, of all the scripture, but we're talking about Ephesians right now. When you open up Ephesians and you pray over Ephesians and you study Ephesians and you memorize parts of Ephesians 
and you think about Ephesians and you meditate on Ephesians and you obey what God says in Ephesians and you live Ephesians, that spigot will open up even more and even more grace, even more peace will come upon you. Now, Grace Church, think about what happened. In, in your life, in our life as a church, in our life as a church moving throughout Abu Dhabi on mission for Jesus Christ, think about what happened if over these next weeks the spigot is opened even more and even more grace is coming, even more grace is coming, even more of God's grace, even more of God's peace. Think about what happened in your individual life and in your family's life and in our life together as a church, in your home group, in our corporate life, and in what happens as you're at your workplace and as you are in your neighborhood and as you're at Dal Mamal and as you're shopping and as you're talking to people who don't know Jesus. As we read and study and pray over and learn and live Ephesians, grace will be poured out. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Father, I pray that you would take these four reasons that this letter was written by Paul whose life displays the worth of Christ. This letter was written by an apostle who wrote perfect truth from God. This letter was written to saints who are living in a difficult city who are faithful in Jesus and that, that this letter will bring us more grace more peace. Father, right now, take those four reasons and stir our hearts that we would read, study, learn, live Ephesians. I pray, Lord, for anyone here this morning who's not yet turned from their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would change their hearts right now let them see the love of Christ, the reality of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the freedom that will come in knowing Christ, the power over sin that comes through being filled by Christ. Lord, let them see Jesus Christ and let them gladly turn from the puny, small pleasures of sin and fall at Jesus' feet and call him Savior and Lord. Let that happen this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Lord, for those of us who are already trusting Christ, oh Lord, stir us up. Deepen our passion for you. I just want to share last night as I was praying, I, I think there's some here this morning and God wants to stir you with what we're going to read in chapter 1, that there's more for you. You can be filled up to all the fullness of God and just, I want to, anybody where you just feel like you're kind of getting complacent or, you know, kind of flat lines. Pray, ask God, stir my heart. It's dangerous to be complacent. We never stay neutral. We're either moving towards Christ with passion or we're, we're going to be moving away. So don't, don't be complacent. So Lord, I pray, move in our hearts now. Pour out your spirit upon us. We worship you, Jesus Christ. Let's worship